Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church, located in Grove City, Pennsylvania. As we approach the end of the 2017 fiscal year, we encourage you, if you've been helped by these sermons, to make a donation to Grace by visiting our website, graceanglicanonline.com, and clicking on the Donate tab. Thank you for your help. And now we turn our attention to the far more important subject of the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. At the core of the Christian experience is a crisis of soul. I think it's impossible to be a Christian without having an unhappy revelation. This is brought home to me every year when I read or watch A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, in which... uh, Ebenezer Scrooge is interrupted. His life of miserly gain is interrupted by a visitation uh, from a deceased friend named Jacob Marley. And you know the scene, Jacob Marley in his ghostly form, chained to uh, money boxes, dragging them behind him wherever he goes, uh, confronts Scrooge uh, in his bedroom. And there's this amazing exchange between the two of them. Uh, Scrooge is, of course, terrified to see his deceased friend uh, approaching him and says, as he tucks himself behind his chair, what do you want? And Marley, you might remember the scene, his jaw is uh, is tied shut. You know, there's a, there's a, a, a... strain of cloth around his face, and he unties it, and he opens his mouth wide, and what do you want? He said, much, and then starts to detail what that much is all about. He says, it is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide, and if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is doomed to do so after death. It is doomed to witness what it cannot share, but might have shared, and turn to happiness. But my spirit never walked beyond our counting house. In life, my spirit never roved beyond the limits of our money-changing hole. And Scrooge, somewhat dim, responded, well, you always were a good man of business. <laughs> And Marley said, business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Scrooge changes the subject and says, but you are chained. Tell me why. Marley responds, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. Is its pattern strange to you? Or would you know the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was as full and as heavy as this seven Christmas Eves ago, and you have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Then concludes with a little hope. But I am here for your sake, Ebenezer. 
you have yet a chance of escaping my fate. Marley very mercifully unveils a crisis in Ebenezer's life that Ebenezer was too blind to see. But he is a ghost of crisis, and he brings a crisis uh, to this man so that he would sober before his demise. And so I think this is intrinsic to true Christianity, to Christianity on the ground. It's a true insight that crisis precedes comfort. Crisis precedes comfort. I think it's why John the Baptist existed, that he was this unsettler, you know, this instigator, this person who came into our lives to unveil the crisis, to unveil the crisis and to show us our ponderous chains. And I want to walk through with you these verses from Mark's Gospel under the banner of crisis preceding comfort. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make, straight, make his paths straight. So Mark begins by saying that he's writing this history because he has something good to say. He uses the word gospel, which means happy declaration or good news, delightful data. Uh, and th this word isn't originally religious, though, not in its origin. It was used by the Caesars as well, the word gospel. For example, uh, when the uh, Via uh, Ignatia was completed, which is a very famous road that in part still exists between Byzantium and Albania. I mean, it was 650 miles long, and in the empire that was really quite something. And whenever it was complete and Caesar noted its value and how it connected portions of the empire that had at one time been uh, separated, uh, he published a gospel and declared good news to the empire that now uh, things were, were running better than ever before. Well, St. Mark has a gospel to publish too, but it has nothing to do with political elitism. Instead, it was about a new king that had entered the world, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Messiah, who was the true Son of God. But oddly, Mark leaps over some of the most significant data about Jesus. Mark, in his gospel, completely skips the Christmas Jesus. If we just had Mark's gospel, we would have no pageants. Uh, we don't have you know, Luke's data. Luke told us about the manger and the shepherds and the angelic choir. We don't have Matthew's data about the dreams and Herod and the escape to Egypt and you know, starlight and magi. It's all gone. Well, he didn't use John's data, you know, John's metaphysical data about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, not for Mark. He doesn't start there. Uh, Mark begins his gospel, this good news to the world, by retrieving an ancient prophecy from roughly 800 B.C., prophet Isaiah. And what's fascinating is this prophecy is not chiefly about Jesus at all. It's about somebody else. It's about John. So he begins his gospel with some desert-oriented prophecy about a desert-oriented prophet that, according to Mark, had to come first. 
You see, for Mark, the gospel or the good news, the happy announcement about Jesus of Nazareth required someone else first. In order for good news, the good news of Jesus to be proclaimed, we needed a forerunner. We needed somebody to scout out the territory and to be an instigator, somebody who would make the Messiah's arrival easier. And so the good news begins not with Jesus, but with his instigator. So we'll move on to verse 4, because the instigator now steps on to the shores of history. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. We get a little bit of a vision of this man, who, by the way, was entirely historical. In fact, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote more about John the Baptist than he did about Jesus. And everybody who knew him understood that he had not one frivolous bone in his body. This is not a relaxed individual. He is not a hippie. He is not somebody that you would want to cozy up to. Uh, he is a very zealous, earnest, apocalyptic prophet who believes that he is preparing souls to meet the end of the world. He believes that he is preparing the way for the Lord's entrance. And so he does not have a message of comfort. That's really not part of his vocabulary. He has a message of imminent threat. John, in many ways, is similar in his emphasis to the other Old Testament prophets. They all said basically the same thing, which I'll now summarize, that God is not only the architect of the physical universe, he's the architect of the moral universe, and has the right, as a deity, to demand certain behavior uh, from his people, created in his own image and likeness. He has that absolute right to say to you, uh, your life ought to look this way for your health and my glory. It's his right to do. Well, there's a problem then, of course, because sin creeps into the human portrait, and everything is a mess. And God says, I don't like how it looks anymore, and this has to be fixed. We have to solve this problem. And so the prophets are all urging people uh, who are wayward to turn around. You are now uh, facing away from your maker, running hellbound in a dark direction. I want you to pirouette. Turn around, face the other way, face your maker, and let's get this thing right. Let's solve this thing. Well, John is very similar uh, to those ancient prophets and wants to um, urge people to face their maker and deal with their crisis of soul, their crisis of soul. John was obsessed with the idea of sin, that there's something about the human condition which is deeply, deeply flawed, and it's, you know, it's, it's more than just your physical problems. John wasn't really interested in you know, your triglycerides, and he wasn't interested in the fact that you don't exercise as much as you should, and you're sort of developing a paunch in your early 50s. He doesn't really care about that very much. He also doesn't care about your psychological problems. I mean, he's not a Jungian. He doesn't say, well, tell me more about your mother. You know? I mean, what happened there when you were 17? Uh, he's not really interested in your relational dynamics and your family. Like, well, let's sit down and, and go through family systems theory with Ed Friedman, and we'll figure out you know, why you react so, so terribly whenever you return home, you become 14 again. Like, we don't... John isn't interested in any of that. He's interested in the soul. He's interested in the part of you uh, out of which issues forth all this negativity. And this, this stuff that is in blatant disregard of the maker of heaven and earth, the architect of your morality. What's with that? And so 
Uh, this crisis of soul was John's obsession. And here's what's fascinating. John, with this message, this very stark and serious and humorless message, attracts thousands upon thousands of people, city-dwelling metropolitan types and country bumpkins, all of them. They all come out to him, and they want help. And so they, um, they attend to his words, and then they, they engage in this very degrading public ritual. Here's what's fascinating to me. You know, he's not Beyonce. Like, he's not there to entertain them. He's not even giving away free iPods. I, I have a friend who's the a pastor at a megachurch, and he said, well, the, the way that we get people to come to our Easter services is that they fill out visitor cards, and we give away 100 free iPods. That's nice, right? I was telling Eric, I don't have an iPod, and I really want one, and so I thought that he might handle Easter while I go get the iPod at this church. I'm just saying. I mean, it's a way to go. And so, uh, but, like, there's nothing, there's no boon, you know? Like, he's not bribing anybody. He is actually giving a message that very, very few of us want to hear. Um, this insect-eating fanatic is leading people to engage in this degrading public ritual that has three components. First, they have to leave home and come to the wilderness. Now, uh, the wilderness is not where fancy people live. It's not where the sophisticates live. And in fact, the wilderness in Judea is where no one lives. And more than that, it has all these connotations because of Jewish history. Like the wilderness is where people wandered around for 40 years after the Exodus because they were disobedient. And the wilderness from then on was seen as a place of purification and punishment. And so that's where they are, wandering around. And more than that, John is giving them a a baptism of repentance. Repentance means to, to turn, of course. It means to spin. And as if that's not enough, he's visibly signing this this alteration of life in the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River is the river that separates the promised land from the not promised land. It's the river that Moses, the people of Moses crossed right before they went into the promised land. And so the fact that John is baptizing people in that river is symbolic for new life and a new start in God's new kingdom. And more than that, of course, it's a water ritual, which entails all sorts of ideas of cleansing People are, are lining up to be baptized by John in this muddy creek that we know is the Jordan River uh, because they're demonstrating to the world with such courage that there's something about their life that is intrinsically disordered, and they need to be clean. And so they're making a public confession to the world that they're not righteous, that they don't belong. And more than that, the text says they're confessing their sins. They name names. They get specific. They are uttering out loud the secrets that they hold in their hearts. And so they're engaging in these tangible and verbal signs of repentance, of turning toward God, of being prepared to meet their maker. And just for a moment, consider the radical nature of this phenomenon and how unusual it is and completely unseen in our current context. You have a desert lined with a parade of people who are traitors, and plagiarizers, and people who let others grope their bodies for money, and parents who bruise their children, and people who waste all their money on liquor instead of paying the rent, Uh, people who curse the name of God and light little candles to demons. All these people who have this baggage and this, this weight, this heavy weight of sin, are all huddling together and joining in this parade of, of freaks and lunatics and madmen and women and 
uh, and what we would consider you know, the refuse of society. And they're all marching toward a river to deal with God and what courage these people must have had. Because I, I find, don't you, that whenever people get too close and are zeroing in on my own issues or my own sins, I get defensive. And I want to dodge, I want to minimize, I want to deflect. But they didn't do that. They had the courage to go where God was and really square with truth. I was reading this fascinating uh, article yesterday by Claire uh, Dederer, who uh, he wrote in the Paris Review an article entitled, What Do We Do With the Art of Monstrous Men? Now, this article was all about the male actors whose talent is obvious, but who also, as we've come to find out, assault women. So what do we do with that? And the author in particular is uh, feeling ambivalent about her admiration for Woody Allen in terms of his art and her disdain for his behavior toward women. And this is what Claire Dederer writes. There's something entirely unacceptable lurking inside me. Even in the midst of my righteous indignation as I rage about Woody and Soon Yi, his partner's child with whom he slept, I know that, on some level, I'm not an entirely upstanding citizen myself. Sure, I'm attuned to my children and thoughtful with my friends. I keep a cozy house, listen to my husband, and am reasonably kind to my parents. In everyday deed and thought, I'm a decent human being. But I'm something else as well, something vaguely resembling a monster. The Victorians understood this. It's why they gave us the stark bifurcations of Dorian Gray or Jekyll and Hyde. I suppose this is the human condition, this sneaking suspicion of our own badness. It lies at the heart of our fascination with people who do awful things. Something in us, in me, chimes to that awfulness, recognizes it in myself, is horrified by that recognition, and then thrills to the drama of loudly denouncing the monster in question. Well, this is what John came to exhume, not the problems in the wider world, not the problems with our neighbors, but the problems within us. But this instigator also understood that he was not the final word. He was not the last speech that God would ever give to the world and that he would imminently be out of a job. He preached, in fact, about his own forthcoming retirement. He said in verse 7, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was saying that Jesus' ministry wouldn't only be different, it would be superior. The dynamic, that which was present in Jesus of Nazareth, would be far exalted above John. This man who was to come would not immerse you in God's elements, in this case water, but would immerse you in God himself. Your whole being would be dunked, if you will, immersed into the Holy Spirit, the Lord the giver of life. Uh, so what John was offering was a symbolic washing in the wilderness. The one who is coming will not be giving you a symbol. 
He'll be giving you something far deeper and far more eternal in its quality. We'll be, in fact, causing God to step even closer to you, to the point where you're immersed in God and made one with God because you are now baptized in the Holy Spirit. John is prophesying about this new dynamic which is coming into the world. In fact, he says in John's gospel, I must decrease and he must increase because what he offers is more important than what I offer. Now, John didn't have the whole picture of what Jesus would offer, but he had enough to know that Jesus was superior. And Jesus's ministry was deeply impacted by John. Many aspects of John's ministry are taken up into Jesus' ministry. John calls people to repent. So does Jesus of Nazareth. The first speech Jesus ever gives to the world is, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The idea of confessing your sins and being real with who you truly are is also part of Jesus' ministry. In fact, I would argue that the Sermon on the Mount is chiefly about exhuming your true self, understanding your own sinful condition. And more than that, Jesus takes John's symbol of baptism, changes it in terms of its theological depth and meaning, but still employs the use of water baptism in his own ministry. So Jesus learns a lot from John, but also has a different emphasis than John. It was Jesus and not John who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son to the end, that any who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Be of good cheer, my son, your sins are forgiven. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The bruised reed he will not crush, and the smoldering wick he will not put out. Jesus' ministry had at its core a profounder note of compassion, comfort, and consolation than was found in John the Baptist. But John's message regarding crisis, the crisis of soul, prepared his hearers to listen to Jesus' message of comfort, to be prepared uh, for what would come later. Or to put it another way, we cannot have the good news of Jesus Christ without first having the bad news of John the Baptist. The compassionate ministry of Jesus, in a sense, doesn't make any sense unless we first acknowledge the problems that John pointed out. And that's why he was the forerunner, the necessary forerunner to this Messiah. Because without this message, the good news isn't very good. So water precedes spirit, law precedes gospel, and crisis precedes comfort. And so in this Advent season, let me close with a word about our crisis of soul. Because even tonight, the ghost of Advent past uh, comes to us in this moment and says, well, what about you? What about your ponderous chains? I think the way we originally came to God in the first place and the way that we now develop spiritually is that we accept the crisis of soul for what it is. And don't diminish it, run from it, uh, don't blame somebody else for it. But really make the crisis of soul a friend. By the way, this is not my first impulse. It is not my first impulse to uh, accept the prophetic word, the word which might challenge my own life. That is not my first impulse. My first impulse is to get defensive. Uh, I, I saw this um, very clearly when I was 20 years old. I was at this church retreat in, in this very horrific camp, and uh, the food was awful. But uh, there was a, a woman leading the retreat who was a terrific and thoughtful 
funny person. And I saddled up to her because I wanted her to think that I was incredibly funny and intelligent. I'm not sure that worked though, because the, I would, I would um, be in her presence and, and I was a loudmouthed and very opinionated 19 year old. And I decided to, you know, tell her what I thought about the world. And she really put up with it for quite some time, very kindly, until I think I broke her spirit. And at one point she said, Ethan, I need you to be quiet now. Uh, I don't know what your problem is, but you've obviously got more than one of them. Uh, I just, you know, uh, something in me died. Uh, but, but what did I do? What was my immediate response? Well, I, I just, well, I walked away, of course. But then I thought, well, what's her problem? Obviously, she didn't sleep well last night because she was so mouthy with me. Or obviously, she didn't really understand our conversations. You know, she didn't have the mind to really grasp the things that I was saying. Or she wouldn't have said that to me. Or she hates men. I mean, she hates men. She probably has this problem with her father or some, you know, son that she's estranged from. And I remind her of that person. And so she, you know, it's a, men, it's a man thing. But it couldn't be me, right? Like, it could, she couldn't have put her finger on the crux of something, right? That's not possible. Instead, it was her, except if it were me. Because what I discovered is that after a lot of soul-searching over that weekend, that I discovered that that was a word directed to my soul, and it was very purposeful and very timely, and it set me up to meet Christ in a deeper way. It really set me up to seek out the grace of God. And I wouldn't have sought out the grace of God unless somebody was rude enough to interrupt me with a crisis of soul. And in fact, in some way, it is not a stretch to say that that the existence of this church is in part uh, dependent upon that moment in time. Because when we're diminished, when we receive the difficult prophetic word, it gives us an opportunity uh, to grow. Because I don't think we grow necessarily without our egos being diminished and made receptive. I think that uh, we, we don't like this innately, right? The prophetic word, the word that challenges and shakes our souls. We like to create a religion of comfort without crisis. Consider these common religious statements. I just looked on Facebook. That's all I did. I'm going to now read them unto you. These are like Christian statements, okay? So, you know, here they are. The church is about open hands, open hearts, open doors. All, capital A-L-L, are welcome here. We are spiritual, but not religious. God loves you just as you are. You are acceptable just as you are. Be true to yourself. The church is a place of diversity, inclusion, and equality. Now, here's the thing. Some of those statements are true, but only if they are predicated on the crisis and the cross. Outside of the crisis and the cross, that is all white noise, and it means nothing. It is a vapor, utterly contentless. Those sentiments could be repeated by a Unitarian in good conscience. There is nothing uniquely Christian about them at all, unless... They have as their foundation the complete human collapse and the cross that remedied it. And then you can say all of those things uh, rightfully and with some heart and some theology behind them. 
But I warn us, friends, of trying to remove the crisis. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, made this prophetic statement 100 years ago. That's what he said. The chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. We cannot, cannot scrub away the face of an offended deity through ignoring his rightful displeasure. Wishing will not make it so. Or to quote Gerhard Ferde, the only solution to the absolute is absolution. The only way out of this is not degrading or lowering the righteousness of God, but having a Christ who met the righteousness of God and died for those who did not and could not. This is how we grow. We make friends with the word of crisis. Uh, When we hear a difficult truth that relates to our core from the word of God or from somebody who speaks truth with the accents of the word of God, uh, I suppose we could react or we could instead say, I wonder if there is something in this that I need to hear. Because that opens the door. That opens the door to a new awakening, to new depths with God, and a new county of the kingdom of God is opened up to us. Remember what Ebenezer Scrooge said to the ghost of Christmas yet to come, men's courses foreshadow certain ends, but if those courses be departed from, those ends must change. Tell me that that is so. Well, that is so, yeah. It is entirely so. This is what happens when we turn away from our own inner darkness, even with a mustard seed worth of repentance and faith, and turn toward the giver of all good gifts, because he is not some disembodied moral principle. He is the man whose feet are muddy in the Jordan River right next to us, standing shoulder to shoulder, there being baptized, in a sense, in our stead, prefiguring his own cruciform death. I mean, there he is. And so our ends have changed because Jesus pardons all that you've brought in here tonight. You have nothing to lose but your ponderous chains. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.